G'day, it's Reese Adams here. Welcome to the show that punches you in the face with information, but in a good way. It's the Enterprise Fitness Podcast, proudly brought to you by the good people at Enterprise Fitness. For all your health, fitness, nutrition, and comp prepping needs, see the coaches at Enterprise to get the job done right. Today's guest is John Meadows. I had the pleasure of meeting John in person when I did his hypertrophy and comp prep course this year, which helped me throughout my prep for the IFBB Victorian Championships, where I won my division in the Mr. Physique Novice category. This was an exciting win as it was in a huge lineup of 15 guys. I believe using John's activation techniques was what enabled me to bring my back up to the standard it needed to be on the day. John is a comp prep coach to many elite level IFBB pro bodybuilders. He's even had Charles Pollockin follow one of his programs with great success. John not only coaches, but is an athlete himself, recently winning his own IFBB pro card. Let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. So welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. So basically, if you could just give us an overview of how you got into the fitness industry um, and how you got into bodybuilding. Well, thanks for having me on. And hello, everybody. Uh, my name is John Meadows. I um, I got into the industry at a real early age. I was uh, probably 12, 11, 12 years old when I picked, I'd say probably 12 years old when I picked up my first muscle magazine. And I actually started competing when I was 13, so it didn't take me long even as a little skinny run to um, figure out that I really had a passion for this. And here we, and here we are uh, 30 years later, and uh, I guess I must like it because I'm still doing it. But, um, I, you know, I just looked through the magazines when I was a, a youngster, and I liked what I saw. I had no friends that did it. In fact, everybody thought I was weird, and it, uh, there, there's probably a lot of truth to that. But, uh, um but uh, so I got kind of hooked on it at a real early age and just have loved it and done it ever since. Yeah. As a kid, were you, were you always athletic or as you're now known as the grain train, were you always like that? <laughs> or is that something that you well, had to work You know, I, um, I like to think I was athletic and every year that I get older, I, I think I was a little better than I probably was. Uh, the reality was I was probably above average, but nothing special. I, I loved, loved, loved football, um, American football. It's, it's absolutely my favorite sport. I ran track. Um, I was kind of mediocre at track, but I had a, I, I was pretty unique, though. I was a sprinter that also pole vaulted and threw the shot putt. Um, I wrestled for many, many years. I did really well. That's a sport I actually hated, though. Why is that? I, I loved the discipline the most. I loved how hard... I had to work, but um, I just didn't like rolling around the mat with another sweaty guy. I just, <laughs> I just didn't find any joy in that, man. I mean, the last year I wrestled, I only lost two matches the whole year, and I told them I'm not wrestling anymore. I, I just don't like this, and they were like, "Why?" I'm like, "Man, this is. I just don't like it." I mean, but I really like the discipline part of it. You know, we had to train really hard particularly endurance work, to be able to sustain, you know, yourself through a full, a full wrestling match. It's a really tough sport. So that aspect of it, I loved it. So, um, and I was, you know, I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was, I was real, a big kid, but I was pretty strong. I remember when I was um, 
in seventh grade, which here would see that put me at 17, 16, 15, 14, probably about 12 years old. Uh, I remember being 105 pounds and actually benched 200. That's uh, impressive. Which is pretty good for a really young kid. And uh, by the time I got to high school, I was, um, I could squat 500 pounds. And um, that was just because I was just training hard. I mean, like way too much, to be honest with you. I was just picking up magazines, and everything I saw in the magazines, I would do it because I thought it would make me look just like the guys who wrote the art. Well, they didn't actually write the articles, but the ones the articles were about. Yeah. Um, so, but um, I saw so I was a, it didn't, I didn't, uh, kind of pick up the size part of it until I got to college. So I was strong, but I didn't weigh a whole lot. And then when I got to college, I think my body started to grow a little bit. And I, you know, I was eating like crazy, probably triple the amount I eat now. Uh, And finally I started to grow a little bit. So when did you start to implement your meadow system? And what, what is the meadow system? Can you just give us a brief overview? Well, um, so I would call it an unfinished system um, because, in my opinion, uh, I, I personally want to continue to learn and I want the system to evolve. The things that I believe in now, I'm not married to them by any stretch. It's just what I believe now based on what I know and what I'm seeing work in the field. If I found a better way, a better technique, a better sequence, a better utilization of, of rest, whatever the factor is, I would adopt it in a heartbeat. So it's the, it's, a, it's the things that I see working now, but it's always subject to change because I, I, I'm a, a student of the sport. I love learning. I'll continue to learn. I'll never be the guy that says he knows everything. Um, but the system itself really is... Um, part of it's just accidental, accidentally doing things that seem to work out well, um, or just stumbling on the different things because you try so many damn things over the years. Part of it's actually thought out. I've actually thought out a lot of things that made sense to me. So it's kind of this, um, the result of years of experience and things that I've learned over the years, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but to kind of sum it up for your listeners, uh, my training system, number one, is set up for hypertrophy. So you have to remember that. That's my goal. My goal is hypertrophy. So I think um, one of the shortcomings of the of a, a thought process, I'd call it, in bodybuilding has always been this obsession over what is, you know, how do you grow? What is the best rep range? what's the best uh, way to grow? And people have always said, well, they've always said it's one thing. Well, it's progressive resistance. It's doing five sets of five or it's doing whatever. But the way I looked at the system, the way that I've built, I looked at it as, you know, what do we know uh, creates hypertrophy? And there's not just one answer. There's the things that are kind of more mechanical in nature such as progressive resistance and adding to your loads and getting stronger, which is very cool. But there's also things that are a result more of, uh, I would call them chemical changes in your body. 
uh, where you train to get like crazy pumps and, you know, just you really, you take muscle fiber activation to muscle fiber exhaustion. You really uh, put a lot of stress on the body and you force it to adapt. So what I tried to do is look at the different techniques that create hypertrophy and logically put them in a system that takes advantage of all of them. And in doing that, I um, develop a sequence that I also believe increased longevity uh, in addition to that, um, and the system has worked, has worked well. It consists of uh, base workouts uh, in which every major muscle is hit once during the week, and we have different phases built, on, built into it to take advantage of that method of hypertrophy. You know, there's a phase that's more where you train a little more explosively, uh, where there's a little more progressive resistance involved, and there's another phase where you're looking more for kind of that that pump that we talk about. Um, you know, so there's different phases. Yeah. Uh, just just to kind of lay them out. The first phase, I'm, I'm a stickler for muscle uh, mind muscle connection and establishing that. So the first phase of my training is done more to activate muscle, get a good pump going. But most importantly, establish this mind-muscle connection where the right muscles are doing the work. And this is, um, you know, when you say mind-muscle connection, it's um, obviously it's been said for, you know, decades upon decades. But I don't think people are really, really good at it. I think when you come out of the gate right from the start of your workout and you really focus on it, I think it has some really good benefits. And then... When you move to the second phase, which is training with a little bit lower reps, you know, now the first phase, you know, you might be in an 8 to 12 rep range, establish a good pump, um, establish a great mind-muscle connection. Now you move into the second phase, you go a little bit heavier, the movements are very basic, uh, it's more progressive resistance uh, driven. And um, I, it's more explosively driven. I believe you can alter, well, I mean, it's not, I believe, it's pretty well documented. You can alter, your training style can alter your uh, muscle fiber types, you know, a slow twitch, the fast twitch. So it, it contributes to that. And, you know, you've, you've, you've done a good job in phase one, hopefully, where you, you've established wide muscle connection. So, the second phase, even though it's more progressive resistance, very compound movements, I think you're still going to get more out of your target muscles that you're working. And then you have this third phase where you try to take advantage more of um, those chemical changes that I mentioned where, you know, you're doing drop sets or iso holds or you're using these high-intensity techniques to create the craziest pump you can get. And now, you know, you've kind of loaded the muscle with blood, and now the, the final phase in this, of these base workouts is uh, training with a good full range of motion and, and in some cases kind of an extreme stretch depending on what the body part is and what you're doing. But basically you're putting a real good stretch on the muscle once it's loaded full of blood. And, you know, there's a lot of um, debate over what's, what actually is the benefit there. Is it some type of occlusion? when you hit a hard stretch with a muscle full of blood. And I think the answer to that is yes, that's definitely part of it. It's, you know, muscle spindles. There's, there's a whole lot of people, you know, a lot of people will even say it's hyperplasia, even though there's 
very little data, if any, to suggest that's happening other than um, uh, the old bird studies that Jose Antonio done. So um, those base workouts um, are done every week. And then what we do is, I believe, to get to your goals the fastest, you have to be able to train the most you can possibly train, which means adding training frequency. And that's where we add in another type of workout that's less traumatic on soft tissue, connective tissue. And I call those pump workouts. In those workouts, you're not really doing the heavy basic movements. You're more driving blood into the muscle. You're helping it recover. But it's also still a stimulus too. Um, so, and a lot of times what I do with people is the way we determine which body parts to train with an extra frequency would determine would be determined by what what needs the most help. So what we're trying to do is establish these base workouts that hit hypertrophy from every angle possible, and then we add frequency to train more often uh, intelligently so we don't beat, beat up your body so there's longevity also. And, um, you know, that's probably in terms of training system, that's probably about the quickest way I could sum it up. Yeah, and that way, by increasing the training frequency and the volume, do you find that you can increase someone's food, which in turn increases their hypertrophy potential? Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And the other thing I would say, too, is I've had a lot of people come to me and say they have um, they don't have an appetite. And in my opinion, training hard is literally like the best thing you can do to stimulate appetite. So what I do with a lot of people is I, for a very short period of time, I actually have them train twice a day. And I don't think I've had anybody that this did not work for. Um, you know, some people worked in a matter of days. Some people might have taken a week. But everybody has said, man, now I'm starving. Um, training hard and training very frequently uh, just seems to drive your appetite. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of physiological things going on there. But um, I would agree with that, though. Um you're training hard, you're doing more work, so you need more nutrition to back up and help you recover. You can't you can't really take advantage of all that training frequency if you can't recover, right? So you got to be on your game with recovery as well. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Have you found your system not to work for some people? Well, I have, and then, you know, you do some um, root cause analysis and you figure out Sometimes they're not eating enough. Sometimes they're uh, doing too uh, doing too much. I'll, I'll give an example, um, uh, and I, I know he wouldn't mind me saying this. One of my really good clients is Fouad Abidad, and Fouad had a really successful year this year. He won two pro shows, and he got second in the other one he done. Fouad's biggest challenge was he would do too much. You know, he'll he'll call me and he'll say, well. I don't think it's working now. My body's starting to ache. And when we, once we dig into it, he's not doing the pump days the way I constructed them. He's doing another base day. So he's beating the hell out of his body. Um, you know, so we pull back the raise, I get him refocused, and boom, he's doing great again. So, I, you know, I'm not going to say uh, I have developed a perfect training system or anything like that. That's silly. Because everybody's different, and everybody responds a little differently but what I would say is most people um, do have, um, they do see results. 
And it just comes down to, I also like for people to, believe it or not, to think a little. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times I'll get people to say, hey, you know what, John, I see you've got this exercise programmed here. Well, I was thinking about this. What do you think about this scenario? And I will say, you know what? Let's try it. Let's figure it out. Because ultimately what I want is people to figure out what works for them. Um, if they take my templates and it, it works perfectly for them as it's written, then that's great. But if, it, if there's a way to make it better for that person, I'm all for it. You know, I, that's what I want. I want somebody and nobody cares that you turned on their mTOR or, you know, or their, you, you've made their muscle cells produce more glute for, they don't care about that. They care about results and whatever it takes to get results is, is what really matters. Yeah, for sure. You actually, you trained Charles Poliquin as well at one stage. The biggest mistake that happened there, he wasn't eating enough, was he? No, he was, no, he was not. He was definitely was not consuming enough calories. (laughs) How did you address that? Well, he he um, he was doing a post-workout shake, and then like an hour later, he would do another one. So he had these two post-workout shakes that were really big, but that's that's what it took for him. Now, he had a little trouble with the intro workout, um, so he, he, didn't, he didn't tolerate the intro workout as well as uh, uh, most people do. So um, I think that was a factor, too. But uh, we basically increased his calories around training, particularly in the post, post-workout phase. Yeah, yeah, just to help with the recovery um, from, yeah. the, from being glycogen depleted after the workout. Yep. Yeah. yep. What inspired you to get into coaching? So you obviously uh, loved training uh, beforehand, but what inspired you to coach? Well, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. And if I wasn't doing this, uh, I'm sure I'd be a teacher teaching something somewhere. I love to teach. Uh, It's a passion of mine. I just love it. Uh, It's a great feeling when you can teach somebody something and they get a lot of benefit out of it and improves their life. I also like teaching, you know, various business stuff and, you know, uh, mentoring in terms of business, you know, like the business aspect. In addition, um, a lot of people have, um, you know, they might just have concerns that questions they have. We know things that are going on in their personal life. Uh, I'm not saying I'm a psychologist, but I do like just helping people in general. And um, if I can teach people or help people in some way based on the, uh, you know, uh, what my experiences have been, then that's a good thing. So. Uh, I just, I, I mean, I've been, I was coaching people in college. I just loved it, and um, I didn't really do it on a large scale until probably about six, seven years ago. And I started to do it on a little larger scale. But I had been coaching all along, uh, kind of in the background, you know, before social media was out. So, how did you, you know, get into coaching in high school? Well, when I was in college, I was um, I was competing and I was winning shows at uh, 19 and 20 years old. I won every show I was in when I was uh, 20, actually, in the men's class. And, you know, inevitably people at the gym would just say, hey, can you help me out? So it was 
it was just a simple thing where I was doing well at that age and people wanted to get a little help. And uh, it was as simple as that. Yeah. So how old were you when you entered your first competition, 19? 13. 13. Wow. Can you compete yes. that young? I, I competed. I was in a show <laughs> when I was 13. I was in an official NPC show. What, ca- um, what category would that be? You know, back then it was a little different. They used to have two teenage categories. They had an age 13 to 17, and they had an age 18 to 19. And then the winner of the 13 to 17 class would face off against the winner of the 18, 19 class, and then you'd have your overall teenage champion. And I remember, Reese, I can, I can remember, like, I can't wait till I'm 13. I can, get in, I can officially compete. I mean, this is crazy looking back at it. Like, I mean, I was thinking this when I'm 12 years old. And um, so when I was 13, of course, I got in the age 13 to 17 class. And, of course, it's 16- and 17-year-olds that absolutely just thrashed me and killed me. Um, I got last place in every show I, ever, I did um, in, those, in those years. Um, but nowadays, they really don't have the teenage classes at all. You know, you have every once in a while a show will have a teenage division, and then you have teenage nationals, but that's it. Uh, and whereas it used to be, man, all the shows had teenage classes. It's just not like that here anymore. Yeah. Since you didn't do so well as a teenager, what kept you coming back? Well, I just loved training for one because I was, I was active in all those sports. So it helped me become stronger and a better athlete. So I never really stopped doing it. And it's funny. I remember when I was 19 years old, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to try this one more time, and if I don't place well, if I don't win, then I'm just going to never compete again. I remember putting this ultimatum on myself at 19 years old like I had tapped out all my genetic potential. I mean, in my mind, that was as good as I was going to get. So this is where the tables turned when you started winning. Yeah, yeah. I was, it was, you know, I was 181 pounds. I was at the bottom end of the light heavies. So I go to this show, and there's maybe 80 guys in the show total. Um, and I get perfect scores in my class and in the overall. And everybody finds out I'm 20 years old, and they're like, wow, that's crazy for a 20-year-old to be winning a men's show. So I, I, there was another show two weeks later. It was called the Mr. Midwest. I did that show. I did the same thing. I won the overall at that show. And um, I was like, hey, this winning thing's pretty cool. Um, so then the next year I did uh, two or three shows and I won all those and I had quite a winning streak going, um, until I was, um, let's see, 1995 until I was probably about 23. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to step it up now, travel out of state and do a really, truly regional show where people come from other states. So I went and did two shows. I did the Southern States in Florida, which is a huge show. And I did the Eastern USA in New York. Both of those shows were huge. They still are huge. And I got my butt kicked in both of them. Just, I didn't place in either one of them. I wasn't in the top five in either one of them. Got my butt kicked. So it was like, you know what? Maybe I'm not as good as I thought. It's time to go back to the drawing board. (laughs) So you've been competing for a while now. How many competitions do you reckon you've done to this day? Oh, man, if I had to guess, I'd say somewhere between 40 and 50. It's somewhere in there. It's pretty crazy. 
Yeah, and I never really competed a lot. It's just that when you do it for so many years, it adds up, you know? Yeah. I actually competed more this year, Reese, than I've ever competed in my life. Um, I did four shows this year, and I've never in my life ever done four shows in one year. And it had the greatest result, didn't it? Because you got your pro card, so congratulations on that. Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, that was um, that was one of the top things, top events ever in my life. Um, outside of getting married and having our twin boys, that would probably be a strong third. That was thirty years of hard work that went into that, and a lot of second place finishes, more second places than I uh, care to remember. And um, when it happened, it was unbelievable. It was incredibly emotional. Um, I. I rem- I just remember when they announced second place and it wasn't me. I remember the crowd went crazy because I had a lot of people there that su- were supporting me and were following me and I and that meant the world to me and it was just incredibly emotional. And I was feeling pretty good, so I was like, you know what? I'm 43 years old. I'm just going to just jump right in these pro shows. And so I did three pro shows and I placed in all three of those. And uh, so it's been quite a year. Awesome, awesome. Do you think you'll ever retire? Yeah, I've actually already retired twice. Um, (laughs) um, You know, what I always say, Reese, is I'm going to retire when I feel like my body's not getting better, when it's going backwards. And I truly mean that. I don't want to be one of those guys that their body goes, you know, south and they look horrible, but they keep competing. I I don't want to be that guy. But I've continued to get better, and the results have been there to back up my statement there. Um, I, you know, I, I try to be really honest with myself and not be delusional. There's certainly a lot of delusion in the sport, and I don't want to be somebody who's delusional. I think I'm pretty honest with myself, and I think I really have gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. So, you know, I and, I and my health is as good now as it's ever been. Um my blood work, my blood pressure, my pulse, all the measures that I really consider key have been as good this year. Probably they're better this year probably than they've been in five, six years at least. So I feel healthy. I feel good. And um, I've made some improvements. Now, this could all change next year. You know, maybe next year I I don't look quite as good. I start going the wrong way. Then it's time to hang it up. But that's kind of what my gauge has been. It's are you getting better or are you getting worse? Because you're one or the other, usually. Yeah, yeah. What changes have you made for the, obviously, the ultimate result that you got to at the comp? So winning your pro card, you must have made some changes to, to finally do that. Well, I think I've just continued continue to refine my training system. And um, for me, um, avoiding injuries and having a system that promotes longevity has been key. You know, there's so many guys my age that have torn pecs, torn biceps, torn lats, torn quads, torn hamstrings. And I've been pretty fortunate to not have tears. And it's it's not just me. The, the people that I've worked with have stayed injury-free. Um, you know, of course, we get little aches and pains and minor strains and things like that. But I'm talking, you know, injuries that really put you on the sidelines. So I think that has been key. And in in doing that, um, it's actually made me a better bodybuilder because it's forced me to 
think more and more and more about mind muscle connection and squeezing and tension as opposed to just moving weight. And so I've continued, um, you know, now I'm stuck in a weight class. So my goal isn't necessarily to get bigger. In fact, I don't really want to gain any weight at my age. But, um, you know, up until a couple of years ago, I was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and using um, for many of my exercises actually less weight. But I was using it in a, in a manner that's better for hypertrophy and staying healthier. And again, as we mentioned earlier, the frequency was a lot higher. So I was hitting the muscle groups a lot more often. Um, so I think just continuing to refine my training system has helped. I think um, nutritionally, I think uh, the biggest change for me in the last three to five years has been the emphasis on nutrient timing. Um, I believe that if you train at a certain intensity, a certain volume, the nutrient timing really has a lot of benefit. Whereas if you kind of go into the gym and you're just kind of exercising little, not really pushing yourself, I don't really see any value with nutrient timing in that situation. Um, So I'm not one of those guys that says yes for nutrient timing or no. I think that's really short-sighted. I think the more intensity you use and volume when you use when you train, the more benefits you see out of nutrient timing. And I, and I see that over and over and over with people, but that's probably been the biggest change nutritionally. Yeah. And just observing how your body's responding. I think it's important, like you said, for people to think for themselves. So if they respond to timing their nutrition in a certain way, well, they're probably on the right track. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm not married to any idea that I have nutritionally or training. If I find something works better, I'll move on to it. Um, I, I really don't care. I would, if I found out for sure, if my clients convinced me that the nutrient timing they were using uh, wasn't was having no benefit, I would have no trouble saying I no longer support nutrient timing. I could care less. I just want people to get results. That's all I care about with clients. Um, you know, and whatever it takes for that client to get the results is what is what matters. So I think people, to your point, keep an open mind. Don't think in terms of black and white. Just figure out what works for you. And who cares if people agree or disagree with you? It doesn't matter. Um, you know, um, just stand up for what you believe in, but also realize it's just what you know at that time and never think you know it all, you know? Yeah. What methods do you use to make sure that you're constantly progressing? Do you use girth measurements, scale weight, um, DEXA scan, or, or everything? Well, at this point, it's, it's strictly the good old-fashioned mirror, but I will tell you that I was obsessed with um, uh, underwater body fat checks for a while. I really, really enjoyed doing that, actually, crazy as it sounds. There's a university here, Ohio State University, obviously a huge university, that has a lab that has a bod pod, uh, and they also do underwater weighing, and they use skin folds. So you go in and you get three different... They actually have a DEXA machine now, too, that I haven't used. But So I would go in there every, you know, six months, and I could compare, I could track my results and look at the trending and see when I was gaining muscle, when I was losing fat and all that stuff. And it was, I was, I wouldn't say I was obsessed with it, but it's really cool to know that stuff, you know. It's really cool to see it. Um, you know, I, I kind of miss doing that. You're, you're making me wish I, I, uh, I could 
should, well, I probably should go back and start doing that again. And you know what? They would do all that for $69. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Like, that's like dirt cheap. I was like, seriously? That's all? They're so like, yeah. What, what stopped you then, John? Why did you stop? I, you know, I think I just got, I think I just, um, I got so busy um, with life and with business. I just, it's just a timing thing. Um, I think I just need to make time and go back and do it, to be honest with you. Yeah. So with your programs, I noticed that they're all 12 weeks long. How did you come up with that? And um, I noticed also weekly you change exercises or rep ranges, etc. You do make changes on a weekly basis. Uh, can you just explain why you do that? Yeah, so the 12-week period is... Um, not based on any scientific study or anything like that. I just feel like I feel like when you push somebody really hard, you're you're getting to that upper limit for most people at around 12 weeks. And I also feel like four to eight weeks is probably not long enough to see some crazy changes. Now, you've you got to realize, too, that this is geared toward more advanced athletes, Um as opposed to beginners, I would not suggest a beginner go out and do my routine uh, or do my programs. It's for people that have experience, um, that have been training for several years. Um, so I want to make that distinction, too, because with beginners, I wouldn't do so much exercise rotation. And I wouldn't have so much focus on, like, say, the, the, the pump phase, that phase three. For a beginner, it would be more like, We've really got to learn stellar form. We got to spend a lot of time in phase two and phase one. You know, phase one and phase two are going to be pretty much where all your work is done. Yeah. That phase three and phase four stuff is more for okay. We got to get you to your create to your genetic potential and get you as much uh, lean tissue as we can. So the twelve week point just seems like about the right time for most people where you can handle that and then you can kind of worn out then you need to back off a little bit rest up deload then start a new program so when um, you say with beginners phase one and two you're talking about um, making sure that they focus on the activation exercises at the start and then the explosive and they don't necessarily need the pump exercises at the end is that what you're saying like they yes, just can't handle exactly, the volume yeah that's exactly what i'm saying um, and, you know, I use this rule, get the most out of the least. There's no reason a beginner needs to be in there doing 25 sets for legs like, you know, I might do. Um, you know, they could probably do some leg curls, some, you know, some really good squats, and then maybe some really good stiff legged deadlifts, and that's a great leg workout for them. They're done. Um, you know, they could, instead of just doing legs, then maybe they might even do a couple exercises for something else. Um, so yeah, I look at, you know, training is very different in my, in my opinion, for somebody who's in kind of the early years of their training versus somebody who's been doing it for a long time. Yeah. So with training volume, um, since we're on the topic, I've found good success tapering the training volume up through a 12 week period, um, and using deloads along the way, and then repeating the cycle by tapering the volume down and then going back up again, just trying to manipulate um, recovery and stress because my understanding is the body needs to be stressed, um, but chronic stress, meaning ongoing stress, can only happen for so long. You need uh, time to recover also. So 
Uh, how would you... What kind of a, a base volume would you recommend for most people? Well, first of all, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I absolutely believe in that as well. I like to push people's training intensity and their volume up as they go. Take it to the point where they think they're on a verge of dying and then pull back. Pull back. And uh, interestingly enough, that's where probably most of the training adaptations take place. Um, but that's the, the, the kind of the 20,000-foot overview that I like as well. Um, but in terms of uh, volume, in terms of sets and things like that, well, actually, let me back up for a second. What you described to me is what I – that's how I look at periodization. Um, periodization, most of it is looked at from the perspective of a powerlifter or uh, like an Olympic sprinter. Um, they train quite a bit different than – a bodybuilder. So you can't use the same periodization ideology that you would use for, say, a powerlifter that you would use for a bodybuilder. Powerlifters are training with much higher weights relative to their one rep, one rep maximums. So there's a lot of CNS stress. They're really pushing their connective tissue a lot harder. So it makes sense to have planned breaks for powerlifters, for example. But for somebody who's more interested in looking good and just hypertrophy, um, I have people use more of an instinctual approach. In other words, if you feel awesome, then keep pushing. If you feel like hell, then it's time to pull back. It's, it's not rocket science. It's very, very simple. And the way I do that specifically is I... I don't allow people to do any of the high-intensity techniques, so no partials, no drop sets, no forced reps, none of that stuff. I don't even let them go to failure. I say leave two or three reps in the tank on every set you do. Don't use any high-intensity techniques. That's the first step. And if that doesn't work and they still feel pretty fatigued, and then I'll pull back their volume and say, okay, let's pull your sets back. Instead of doing 16 sets, you're back. Now let's do nine sets. Um, if the first attempt didn't work, then the second pulling back the volume will work. That Those two things will work. Um, and usually you're looking at about a one- to two-week period with most people where when you do that, they'll come out of it and they'll feel really good. Um, and then, you know, so that's like when you for somebody who's been really pushing hard, uh, that's not to be confused with somebody who's just had a rough night out, stayed up too late. They don't feel good the next day. That doesn't mean you automatically initiate a two-week deload, you know? <laughs> um, so people like to do that, too. I'm like, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, you just need to take a day, one day off, eat good, and then start back where you were. So I, I really like talking about the periodization thing because I think that's a big key in continued progress. You push your body really, really hard, but then you pull back. And... Um, uh, it, it just makes sense. It creates longevity and it creates results. So um, that's a little bit of an overview there. Uh, and then I think your question was really what kind of volumes? Yeah, so as, as a general uh, rule of thumb, what would you say is a good base for, say, a beginner versus advanced? You know, I, I, I would probably 
say that 15 to 20 total sets for a beginner is enough. Um, I would use more compound exercises, but not exclusively. One of the things you have to do as a beginner is you have to learn mind to muscle connection. And if you don't use any isolation work, you will never learn mind to muscle connection. If you're only doing compound movements, then you'll have a hard time with some body parts because you never really learn how to contract them. So I like a good, I do like the, um, the, you know, the larger compound movements, but not exclusively. You also want to make sure that somebody's doing isolation work as well. Um, so, you know, that amount of stats. And then as you progress, you know, for me, what's typical is between like, for instance, for instance, if I'm doing chest, shoulders, triceps, and say abs, then, you know, I'm probably looking at more like 30, 30 sets, um, you know, probably about double that. Uh, and I think the key is for people to just do what's the least amount they can do and get results and then just work up from there. So even though I said 12 or 15 sets, hey, if you can do six sets and you get great results, then hell, just do six sets. And then when you need to go to seven, go to seven. When you need to go to eight, go to eight. But uh, it's like dieting. Always give yourself somewhere to go. Um, that's how I look at it. So uh, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And with enhanced versus natural clients, do you adjust the volume at all? And if so, like, how much would you say you do? Well, I, you know, um, enhanced athletes can obviously handle a lot more. Um, your, the drugs help you repair faster, quicker. That's just facts. They just do. So um, a lot of times the actual uh, soreness, though, uh, that people get really has nothing to do with whether they're taking drugs or not. Um, it, what I find is when people's nutrition, particularly around their training, is really, really good, um, they're going to repair really, really fast, whether natural or not. And um, the opposite of that is when somebody's nutrition is really poor, particularly around training, whether they're enhanced or not, their recovery is not going to be good. But the actual workouts themselves, you know, um, I, I believe that people who are enhanced can handle a lot more volume. Uh, and, you know, come away with it doing, doing okay. Um, I do think, yo, it's very individual. I've seen guys that were natural. I've coached guys that were natural that could absolutely bury guys that were enhanced. Um, so um, I would, you know, it's going to be a little different for everybody, but there's obviously a role that drugs play, and they obviously do help people uh, able to probably train more and get more out of it. But don't underestimate the role of nutrition, though, because whether you're enhanced or not enhanced, the nutrition piece, to me, is uh, one of the biggest factors in how well you recover. Recover. Yeah, with that said, you use a lot of intra-workout nutrition. What does yours look like at the moment? Well, uh, what mine looks like at the moment is uh, probably a little extreme. Um, I just... Hit a, I just hit a phase where my training intensity is really, really high. So uh, give me an example. Today I had 105 grams of, of uh, carbs during training with 30 grams of aminos. That's, that's what I did today, you know. But I'll typically do 
you know, maybe a third of that. And then when I'm training a little harder, I'll do more. But now I'm training my hardest, so I'm doing the most. Um, so, um, again, the more I'm doing, the harder I'm working, the more I think I can benefit from it. But if I was just going in doing calves and abs, would it make sense to take in 105 grams of carbs? I don't think so. Yeah. So do you take in more on, say, leg days versus, say, an arm day? Absolutely. Yep. Do you think yep. Do you think training like a powerlifter is a good idea for bodybuilding? The reason I ask is you train with Dave Tate, and uh, he's got a powerlifting background. Uh, has his training influenced yours at all? I actually met Dave at Westside Barbell. Um, I trained there. I actually was a powerlifter in the mid-'90s. I, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was actually a really good squatter. Um, but uh, I, I've always felt like uh, powerlifters, there's certain things that they do that can help bodybuilders and vice versa. I've always felt like the getting the best of both worlds is probably the most optimal strategy. Um, in, in the simplest terms, the compound movements that powerlifters really, really do a lot of create a great base for bodybuilders. And a lot of the assistance work that bodybuilders do, although we don't really call it assistance work, it is, help powerlifters to overcome specific weaknesses in different areas and become better powerlifters. So, you know, I, I, when I was at Westside Barbell, we did our standard powerlifting workout, and then I would jump in the car. I lived on the east side of Columbus, and, and the powerlifting gym was on the west side of Columbus. So I would drive across town and do the powerlifting workout and then jump on my car, shoot. Hey, Jonathan, can you shut my door? Sorry, my kids just got home. Thanks, buddy. Um, so I would do the powerlifting workout, and then I would come home or I would drive to the gym and do the bodybuilding workout. So I was actually doing both, both in the same day, one right after the other, and I could, you know, we had a good time. Um, but I, to answer your question, I do believe there's a lot of benefits to using both styles of training. Yeah, they actually complement each other, as you said. Yeah, and the powerlifting stuff, honestly, is is really fun to me. I've um, I always enjoyed powerlifting, and um, there's nothing funner than squatting heavy and deadlifting heavy. That stuff's just really fun. Um, but unfortunately, at 43 and having 30 years under my belt, I can't quite do the heavy stuff like I used to, though. <laughs> so you have had to adjust it a bit. Do you, would you say you do more activation exercises now just to make sure that you, you really fatigue the muscle so you don't have to go as heavy? Or Well, I definitely have had to adjust my training, absolutely. My lower back flares up pretty easy if I'm not careful. Um I, I would say that when I get to that second phase uh, where it's more progressive resist, resistance related, I don't really push the heavy weight. I don't, I don't, here's what I would say. I don't take training to the point where I'm doing a set where my only focus is to get the weight from point A to point B. I don't mind going heavy as long as I can maintain control and feel the movement working where I want it to work. Whereas before, you know, I would say load it up. I'm just going to get it from point A to point B, which is a powerlifter. That's how they train. But um, now I can't really take it that far. I'll take it as heavy as I can 
as long as I continue with perfect form. When my form breaks, particularly on a compound exercise, I stop the set. If um, if I was like, for example, doing a squat and my form broke and something weird happened with my mechanics, I would absolutely stop. Um, that's probably a good idea, no matter what what phase you're in. But um, I'm uh, definitely a little more cautious with just piling on weight now, uh, as opposed to what I, I did. I used, you know, I used to every Saturday squat six plates for sets of ten. And no knee wraps, no squat suit, just a pair of sweatpants, a belt, a sweatshirt. And uh, this is when I was in my 20s. Every Saturday, man, I, all Friday, all I would do was think about my the next morning, how what my squat workout would be like. Um, and then Saturday, you go in there, the music's blasting, and, you know, we'd work up to six plates. And for years, we did this, and we'd do a set of 10 with 585. Um but uh, if I tried that now, it'd probably uh, crack me in half. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, as um, as we do age, obviously our recovery isn't as good. Have you found that your recovery's um, starting to slow down, or is it still pretty good? It's still pretty good as long as I maintain my focus on nutrition around training. But if I get lazy with that, I pay the price. Um, You know, like uh, if I get done training and I decide to go, I don't know, say Christmas shopping, (laughs) uh, and I don't really put any food in me for three or four hours, then there's a good chance I'm not going to recover nearly as well um, if I would have had, you know, a nice meal after I trained. Yeah. What happened to the organization, John? You've got to be prepared, mate. You've got to take a meal with you. Oh man, I think uh, I think the kids took it out of me. Kids caused me to work at a frantic pace, and I, I, uh, uh, it's funny, man. People will tell you all these cliches like you know your life changes, you're never going to be the same, and all this stuff, and and it's true, <laughs> man. When you have kids and you have all kinds of things going on, you uh, sometimes don't think as clearly, and you forget. Yeah. Uh, Part of that's probably some uh, uh, senior stuff going on with me at my age, but um, I'm not. I, I definitely don't. I'm definitely not as prepared as I used to be. I used to be the guy that had everything in the trunk of his car, so it's like no matter what happens, if I get stranded in the desert, I'm going to have enough meals to last me for three weeks. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where did you learn to program from, John? Like, what would you say that the top three resources you use currently are? Well, a big influence on me was Louis Simmons. He um, he uh, runs Westside Barbell here in Columbus. Louis was um, a really great um, uh, coach of mine, and you know it was all powerlifting related. But uh, he taught me a lot. I really, really enjoyed my time with Louis. Um, I've been influenced quite a bit by uh, Tom Platts and his bodybuilding methods. Um, from a psychological perspective and how hard to really push yourself and then an actual exercise technique um, perspective, you know, partials, drop sets, four straps, doing all that stuff and how far you can actually take it. So that's, that's been, um, I say Louie and those are probably my top two. Um, The third one is probably Dave. I mean, Dave and I love to experiment, man. We will, um, 
you know, we might do a back workout where we do nine different exercises. Then let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. And, you know, maybe one of the ones that we try, we like, that was stupid. We'll never do that again. But we might find one where it's like, oh, wow, that actually felt pretty good. And we should incorporate that into the program. So now, I mean, Dave and I, uh, we really, uh, I think Dave is very similar uh, as I am in the fact that he doesn't mind doing something a little different if it's going to give him a good result. He doesn't, he's not married to his ideology. It's just all of the ideology is just all about getting better. So I'd say Louie. I would say Tom Platts and I would say Dave are probably my three biggest influences. Yeah, and you, would you say that they've been pretty consistent? You haven't really changed your ideologies as you've gone? I would say they've gotten better over the years. Um, a lot of the things I do now, Reese, is it's, you know, I'll do a program and then I'll write another program that looks different. And it's not that one's necessarily better than the other. It's just different. Uh, it's just a little different, a little different exercise selection, a little different philosophy. Um, sometimes, you know, one type of person might respond better to one program versus the other because I do have some different little uh, nuances in my programs. But, um, you know, hopefully they're getting better, but they're not always better. Sometimes they're just different. You know, I'm at the point with most people uh, that I coach in the professional ranks and myself where we're trying to literally get that last 2 to 3% out of our uh, genetics. You know, not, not that we know our full genetic potential, but my point is, is you've come a long way. And now you're really trying to get the last little bit out. You know, what? have a guy, Ken Jackson, that... Um, I'm pretty proud of. He's a really good guy. And Ken was, you know, he started competing in the pro ranks and he, uh, he honestly just wasn't doing very well. And, you know, he comes to me to help him. And I see these big guys, they come to me to help. And, you know, I, I'd be honest with you, man. Sometimes I'm intimidated. I'm like, man, what in the world can I do for this guy? He's already awesome. So Ken comes along and he's like, man, I got to get better. I'm not placing well. He's already, um, you know, what most people would consider a monster. But we found a way over the course of three years to put 15 pounds conservatively of muscle on him. Still has a teeny, teeny, tiny waist, one of the smallest waists in the IFBB. But it took time. It took a lot of thought. It took. Um, what would you say go through? goes through your head, John, when you have someone come to you who is at, is at that level um, and just trying to get more out of them, what, what would be the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, the first thing is I wondered what kind of person they are. Um, and what I mean by that is character. Is this a good guy? Is this a guy I want to associate with? Or is this guy a shady guy? Is he... Um, somebody that I don't don't really maybe not necessarily have the um, uh, you know the moral constitution that I like to have in my athletes and I, I have a, I firmly believe in surrounding myself with the best possible people and I have no desire to coach people who are um, you know hard to deal with you know 
if you're hard headed and you don't want to try anything new, then why in the hell did you come to me in the first place? You know? So I, first of all, want to make sure the person and I are going to click and that they're what I think, you know, they're a good person. Now, I mean, can you tell right off the bat? No, but you can talk to people and you can get a first impression and you can get an idea of what it's going to be like. And I have absolutely no trouble telling somebody, you know what, I'm not, uh, I can't take you on at this time. I have no problem saying that at all. So I look at the kind of person it is. Um, that's what goes to my mind. But then it's, then it's like, okay, I wonder what this person has been doing to get to where they are now, uh, particularly if they're stuck, because whatever it is they were doing, we got to change. Um, so that is another big thing, too, is I just wonder, you know, and then, of course, you always wonder how hard has this person really worked? Because when you're dealing with these high-level professionals, they're all pretty genetically gifted. So, you know, you kind of wonder, is this guy leaning on his genetics or has this guy just have above average genetics, but he's just worked his ass off and done really, really well? So, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said that didn't cross my mind a time or two as well. Do you, when they, when they come to you, say you get an online client, do you get many IFBB pros that come to you on an online level? Or is it a lot of face-to-face? Because obviously you have to make sure they train hard enough. Um, and being online, it would make it hard to make sure. It is, but obviously the pros I coach are from all over and they can't all be here in Columbus. Um, but what they do is they come in to see me quite a bit. You know, you'll see me doing videos uh, quite often with these different guys. And I tell them up front, you know, I'm going to need you to come see me every, you know, X number of weeks. Um, and usually when they do, it's really productive, and then they can't wait to come back again. So it works out. I just got to get them here that one time. And then when I can just really study what they're doing and make some changes, it's usually uh, a great experience. And they're like, oh, man, I got to come back. And so, you know, then they come back. Yeah, because having someone look at you is very different to training yourself and, and just going by how you feel. Having someone observe as well can help, especially with a trained eye like you. So you can make those minor changes which have a major effect. Yeah, and some of that stuff, to be honest with you, is really hard to even teach online. You know, there's there's little nuances with exercises that I may not even see until I see the person's mechanics. Um I, you know, and a lot of it's just, you're right, it's just a lot easier to see it in person. And, um, you know, somebody can tell you, hey, I'm doing everything you're telling me, but maybe they think they are, but maybe what you were expecting is a little different than what they're doing. It's it's impossible to say for, with 100% certainty unless you're actually with them, you know? Yeah. Where, where would you recommend for the listeners to go uh, to get an understanding of hypertrophy? My first recommendation would be to check out your website, um, not only to read the countless articles, but also to experience the workouts that you've generously shared on there. So my brother and I actually did a lot of your workouts, and we definitely got some good pumps out of them. So I definitely recommend people check out your website. Where, where else would you recommend? Oh, boy. Um I got to think about that because there's certainly a lot of resources out there, but um, 
to fully back them. I, um, I would say Brad Schoenfeld has some good stuff. Brad is a really, really bright PhD that's up in New York. Um, he does a lot of research and he used to compete as a bodybuilder. So I really look up to Brad. There's another gentleman named Scott Stevenson, who's a friend of mine, who's a PhD down in Florida that also competes at a really high level. He is an awesome resource. He, um, if you look up Scott Stevenson fortitude training, uh, he's pretty easy to find. He's an absolutely fantastic guy. He actually co-wrote my training book with me. I have an ebook that that the revolve that shows my kind of training philosophy. A lot of things we talked about today. Uh, he actually co-wrote that with me. Um, he's a fantastic resource. So I would say those are two other people that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Awesome, awesome. I've learned a lot from Mike Israel as well. I just thought that you've done an interview with him as well. Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Mike might have, we might have done two interviews. It might it was either a two parter or we did two, but um, I think we got into some pretty good subjects. With lagging muscles, what have you found the most common mistake um, people make in terms of trying to bring up a lagging muscle? Would you say that they they don't address the activation issue beforehand um, before increasing the frequency? Would you agree with that? Yeah, most of the time they they don't feel like their for instance they don't feel like say their back is is um, growing so they just train it more often. But when the problem is rooted in a lack of mind muscle connection and muscle fiber activation and exhaustion, you can train as much as you want. It's not going to help. So that's why that phase one is so critically important: learning how to contract muscle groups. Um, usually when you can teach somebody that, they'll start to see some benefits. Generally speaking, that's the biggest problem. Yeah. I've got a good question from a, our receptionist at Enterprise Fitness, Anna. She, um, she wants to grow glutes to the point that when she walks in the door, she wants them to come in five minutes later. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she, she was wondering if you had any advice on uh, how to do that. Well, there's two ways you can do that. The first way involves a lot of ice cream, and uh, you can develop quite the large glutes if you consume enough ice cream. Um, the second is more exercise-related, and I would say I, I personally like uh, you know I like those um, uh, the one-legged um, oh god my brain is turning off the the one-legged squat. Um, Bulgarians, duh. Um, Bulgarian squats are great for glutes. I also like just your basic barbell squat. Um, Those are probably my two favorite glute exercises. I do like good old-fashioned hyperextensions, too, where instead of using your lower back as the main mover, you just pull your torso up by flexing your glutes. So I would say Bulgarian squats, um, barbell squats. A lot of people like, um, you know, there's a guy, Brett Contreras, who's a really, really nice gentleman that's done a lot of research on um, uh, glutes. That's that's what Brett's known for. 
Um, but he likes, you know, for you to put a pad on your hips and lay under a bar and do these glute bridges. Uh, I think that's probably a good exercise too. I, I, I've never really done those consistently. Um, I think if I had, I'd probably see some good results, but, um, that's another thing you can do is glute bridges. Um, he, Brett might even have a different name for him. Um, but you can look up the glute guy and you'll see what I'm talking about. I think he even, I think he even made a machine that you yeah, can he did. Yeah, he actually did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brett's a good guy. He's a, he's a fantastic guy. Uh, super nice kid. Very intelligent, very well researched. And um, he knows his glutes, that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks for that, John. Um, so with sodium loading, I just want to quickly touch on that and water manipulation. I remember when we did your course that you touched on uh, a system that you had good success with. Has this changed since the course, or do you still use the same system? No, not really. I think I saw you guys in April, and I had... Um, I had... Uh, I've had, I think, four, no, three three or four guys win pro shows using that protocol. Um, so, it, you know, again, it's going to be a little different by person. It's not smoke and mirrors changing a bunch of stuff, just very, very minor changes. But um, what we talked about that course was kind of establishing a baseline on carbohydrate intake and then slowly ramping it up toward the show just to ensure your glycogen levels are full and um, not doing anything crazy with water and making sure you had adequate levels of sodium um, which involved you know usually I would have people use a little bit of sodium throughout their whole prep um, for a number of reasons but um, not removing all their sodium but those things that we talked about are um, still kind of the basic format that I use to start with with most people. Yeah. Could you touch on that just briefly, like what, what you tend to use? So it's mainly just uh, sodium. And I remember you, you you'd put it at um, at the end of a meal and you put um, potassium at the start of a meal. Was that correct? Yeah, yeah. What I what I like to do is separate liquid from the meals. So what I'll do is I won't have any water um, 15 minutes before a meal or about 20 minutes after a meal. And what I do is before the meal, I'll have people take a little bit of potassium. Um, and then after the meal, I'll have them take and, it's, and then they shut off their water. Uh, and then after the meal, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, um, I'll either have them consume a little bit of salt or I'll have them use sea salt on their meal. Um, there's no really exact science to it, but it just, it seems like um, a very, making sure you have enough potassium um, and enough sodium uh, will creates a nice full muscle with carbohydrates. It's nice and tight. Um, that's something that you may have to adjust. Sometimes when people use too much sodium, they have they, they do start to retain water. I mean, that's one of the things that sodium does. The question is just where you're retaining the water. If it's intramuscular, hey, that's great. If it's not so much just intramuscular, it's probably not so good. 
But like anything else, it just requires some some uh, practice. So for for people who are fat free and really really lean, it's something cool to play with. Um, be careful, you know. Be careful uh, with it. You obviously don't want to take a ton of potassium and cause cardiac arrhythmia and have a heart attack and die. That's not a good side effect. Yeah, you definitely so, want to be careful with potassium. Yeah, so you know, don't be reckless. Um, but uh, yeah, so potassium about 15 minutes before. Now, now I do want to emphasize too that we typically only do that for about 36 hours. Okay, so, so it's a short a short period of time. It's a very short period of time. Um, it's not something you do all week. Just something you would do about the last 36 hours. Sometimes I only have people do it the last four meals. Sometimes I have people do it the last eight meals. It depends on uh, – we play around with it two weeks before, and that gives me some data on how that person's body works, and hopefully their body will be working similar two weeks later. Yes, that is, that is the key because sometimes it can change. That's right. It absolutely can. With fats and carbs before a show, so say, say the week leading up to the show, have you had any success with fat loading or um, do you tend to just use carbs? I used to be a fat loader. I used to, um, I used to use steak, whole eggs, and peanut butter. Um, I kept, you know, this works well for people who tend to be really water retentive with carbohydrates. You can uh, take your carbs down to anywhere from 50 to 100 grams, uh, or if it's a really big guy, maybe 150 grams. And then you can just add in more fat. You can have a little fattier cuts of meat. Or you can have scrambled eggs. Um, you could, um, you know, peanut butter. Those are the three fats that I used before a show. Um, and I always, and I, it really helped, man. I had a really ripped and dry look. Um, but as I got older, believe it or not, I actually developed, it's probably just because I got bigger, but I, I can tolerate carbs a lot better. And, and still keep that nice and dry look now. So now I tend to use more carbs. But for those uh, who are listening, if you tend to be a little more watery tentative with carbs, then give it a shot. You know, pull your carbs down to 50 to 100 grams and just add in an extra 15, 20 grams of fat a meal, something like that, and see how you look. Because uh, it works really, really well for a lot of people. And then on the day of the comp, would you say just stick with fats until about an hour, hour and a half before you go on and then get some carbs in you and start pumping up or still stick with well, fats then? I like for people to kind of have an empty stomach when they're up there so that they have good stomach control and uh, I don't want them to feel sick and bloated. I don't want their stomach to be distended. So I typically don't let people eat for two to three hours before they get on stage. If I've got somebody getting out on stage, say at noon, then nine o'clock is going to be their last meal. Now, in that last meal, I actually like to have a balance of fat and carbs because um, what happens is if you go low fat, many times people will get a pretty good uh, insulin dump from their pancreas from all the carbs, and then they get lightheaded, and then they start to feel funny, and then, they, and then if you throw in the fact they're not drinking a lot of water, and then you got this, you got this snowball effect where all of a sudden they start looking worse and then they start stressing out and then the stress kicks in and then all of a sudden they look horrible so i like to keep fat in there to keep them uh keep the glucose levels keep glucose kind of 
trickling in, but not, you know, dumping in really hard um, from a ton of insulin all at once. Um, fat does slow the entry of glucose into the bloodstream, so it kind of it controls how much insulin your pancreas is pumping out. Um, plus the fat just, um, I think for a lot of people, just, you just feel a little better. And, um, you know, so that, I like to, come, I actually have both, about typically three hours before stage. Yeah. You said that about three hours before. So would you say that you have any, uh, say, a small amount of liquid um, with the carbohydrate in it at all? Or you just completely nothing for the three hours? Uh, honestly, the day of a show, I, I prefer to not have any liquid up until prejudging. Um, what I will do sometimes is sometimes I will have people use a small little inch of workout drink before they pump up um, with no more than, say, 500 milliliters of water, the max, probably closer to 250 milliliters. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about a big inch of workout drink. I'm talking about, like, maybe one scoop. Um, well, sometimes I'll have people do that. You know, some people like they volumize. It's like their muscles respond really well to cell volumization. And if you put a little liquid in them, some carbs, they, they pump up really good and they stay tight. Some people pump up really good, but then their stomach starts to be a little, maybe a little more blurry or a little more distended. So, um, you know, you got to be careful. But um, that's another another approach people can consider. Yeah, yeah, it is a fine line. I found that with my trial competition because I did two competitions. Um, the first one I found what happened was I didn't carve up enough. Uh, so it yes, it had the benefit of keeping my stomach smaller. But I found that because I didn't have enough carbs, I couldn't keep tight enough. Um, I found that the more I ate, the the tighter I could keep my midline. Um, within reason, because there is that that point at where you, you you start to have too much in your stomach. So I guess it is about finding that fine line that works for you. Yeah, you know, and I and the, I like to just keep things pretty simple. Um, yeah, you know, that's why a practice run is so important. A couple weeks out, so you can you can give it a shot, see how your body's reacting. But um, I don't do these crazy depletions and crazy loads. I just think it's unpredictable. So you're more, uh, more of a fan of cruising in, in terms of glycogen levels, like not depleting too much? Uh, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I found that I depleted a bit too much leading up to mine um, and had to bring myself back up. Because Well, a lot of times you can't get out of a depletion, especially with um, some of the bigger guys. Um, a lot of times they can't get out of a depletion, and it's not just big guys; it's anybody, any guy really, any any competitor. You, if you deplete yourself hard enough, you're not coming out of it uh, for days. Literally takes days. You now you can eat a bunch of food at once, but eating a ton at once, all it's going to do is blow your stomach out, and it's not like you can shovel all that glucose into your muscle and make glycogen instantly. You know. Um, if that was the case, hell, we could just have 1,000 thousand grams before we got on stage and we'd all look massive, but that's not how the body works. So, um, yeah, it's sometimes man, it's really hard to get out of depletions, and I've been guilty of this myself. I, I've depleted overly hard and thinking I could overcome it and get this massive supercompensation effect, and it didn't work out that way. 
You know, you might get your body weight back, but it won't look the same. And, um, you know, that's not a good trade-off. Yeah. I found that increasing training volume, obviously it um, helps with basically taking in more glycogen, helps with giving you that full look. So, obviously, um, around the show, do do you... Um, how, how do you adjust volume? Well... I don't really adjust my volume, but I do adjust my intensity. One of the things I've found is that people look better on stage when the last seven to ten days they really pull their intensity back training-wise so the muscles are fresh. They're not beat up and depleted. So I don't let people, uh, you know, do the high-intensity stuff. Um, I tend to have them just focus more on contracting really, really hard keep intention on the muscle, and um, I think that produces a better look on stage. I, this is another one I've been guilty of, training really, really hard right up until two days before the show or the day before even sometimes. And then I just couldn't, this, this didn't quite look right, you know? And when I kicked my ego aside and said, you know, I'm going to go a little easier, um, poof, all of a sudden I look better when I competed. So I've adopted that with pretty much everybody that I coach that we pull back on the intensity the last week, seven to 10 days. And, and they always look better. Yeah. I guess the magic in that is making sure that you're actually training hard enough leading up to it before you back it off. Right. That's, um, <laughs> that's, um, the, the, uh, assumption. <laughs> so that's the assumption. It's not always true, but I, 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 yeah, I mean, you have to be busting your ass in order to need to, you don't have that need to, if you haven't been busting your ass and working really, really, really hard. Yeah. Do, do you get regular blood work, John? And when you do your blood work, what do you look for? Well, I get blood work done every six months, and I look for my insulin level. Now, I'm not talking about uh, fasted glucose. I'm talking about my true insulin level. I look at that. I uh, look at my vitamin D levels. I look at my... Um, uh, homocysteine levels. I look at um, my C-reactive protein levels. C-reactive protein and, and homocysteine are, uh, you know, will show inflammation in your body. I like for inflammation to be almost non-existent in my body. Um, you know, just a low reading. Um, I get all the basic liver and kidney stuff done. You know, AST and ALT for your liver, which, by the way, are are pretty much always slightly elevated in people when they train hard. Um, you know, the kidney stuff, the blood, urea, nitrogen, uric acid, all that stuff. I look for that. Creatinine. Um, I look at the, uh, uh, the lipid panel, you know, triglycerides. If I'm looking at HDL and LDL, I try to get a particle size test so you can determine if the LDL particles are smaller in size, which are the more uh, dangerous ones that can lodge in uh, vascular tissue as opposed to the larger size molecules, which they call fluffy molecules, which just tend to kind of bounce around uh, and not really lodge anywhere and cause any damage. But I, I, what I like to see is a low triglyceride and a high HDL. Um, and I like to see, obviously, a low insulin level, uh, mince level is within range. I like for those LDL particles to be larger and fluffy. I like to see low inflammation. 
The other thing is not blood work, but getting your blood pressure checked uh, is, is very key. I do that all the time. And I got, you know, there's these little, you know what, let me, I want to tell you the name of this thing. Uh, I'm going to pull it up on my phone right now while we're talking. But there's, um, I went to the dentist and she, she's the one that showed me this. She put this, puts this thing around your wrist and then holds your arm a certain way and it does your blood pressure. And it's called an Omron, O-M-R-O-N, um, device. And it says IntelliSense Omron. And I'm looking at my last one. It was 119 over 75. But um, so I like to really keep a close eye on blood pressure, too. I think that's what, when it stays elevated with pe- for people over years and years and years, I think that really can cause havoc. It's not one of those things that kills you quick. It takes time, so you got to really keep your eye on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a, a good sign to, to say that you're overworking it when that blood pressure starts to come up. Yeah, you know, mine is, um, if anything, mine is kind of low sometimes, which is weird, But uh, and my pulse is in the low 60s, uh, which is good. I'm happy about that. Um, yeah, I mean, having Dr. Serrano be a mentor of mine, we obviously spend a lot of time talking about this stuff, and especially now that I have I have kids, you know, uh, we have a family. I want to obviously live forever and never die. <laughs> so, Where would you live forever as well, John? Yeah, um, I'm still working on that one. I haven't got that one figured out yet. <laughs> Do you ever get your cortisol tested? I've found that with clients, um, the ones that have high cortisol, um, I've found that they don't tend to respond to training as well, and their body composition is very hard to adjust. I started to say that. It's hard to get them leaner, isn't it? Yeah. Very hard. Yeah, it is. It is. And as long as you're getting the uh, the cortisol test where they're measuring it throughout the day so it can determine the right. Because your, your cortisol obviously has peaks and valleys that are just a natural, um, you know, just nat- they have natural peaks and valleys. So just getting it done at one point in time through like blood work, for instance, is not typically very informative. But if, if you're doing that saliva testing and you test it when you wake up and at other points during the day where you can see where it's at, if it's following the normal pattern, that's what you want people to do. But, yeah, I do think that's very valuable, and, and I agree with you, man. It's really hard to get people lean when their cortisol levels are through the roof. Their uh, body composition sucks. They lose strength. They can't sleep. It's, um, it's it's usually not a good thing. Yeah. The biggest thing I've found is I'll just taper it back from where they're currently at by about one to two uh, days a week of training, and then all of a sudden they'll start getting results again. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't take much. You know, Sometimes they're just right on the edge or just right beyond it, but they're not that far over it. So it doesn't take a huge change. The, the challenging ones are the ones where people's lifestyle is uh, producing constant stress. You know, say somebody's job uh, constantly stresses them out, uh, whatever is happening at their workplace, or let's say they're in a relationship that's constantly stressing them out. Um, You know, is my spouse constantly cheating on me, blah, blah, blah. But these, um, these things that happen just in life, that uh, cause stress all the time are much harder to deal with and harder to correct than 
telling than the ones that are created maybe by a little bit extra too much training or too much a little too much intensity. You know, those are the ones that I really I have a hard time with because it's it's tough situations, you know. And I try to live as stress free as I can. I really do. I put a lot of effort into trying to be stress free because I think stress is an absolutely destroyer. Um, really, really, I think takes years off your life and does a lot of bad things to you physiologically when you're always stressed. Your blood pressure, your your insulin uh, sensitivity. There's a lot of markers like that that go south. And then just your quality of life, man. If you're sitting around negative all the time, what kind of life is that? You know. Um, so yeah, that's the tough one for me. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. John, I'm a big fan of your website, like I mentioned before, mountaindiet.com. Yeah, mountaindiet.com. Um, and love the workouts, uh, like I mentioned also. I noticed that you dropped the price under $10 now. So that, that was very generous of you. <laughs> well, I moved it up. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was, well, it depends on how long. It depends on how long you get. You know, I moved, I should, I should clarify that. I moved them for someone who only wants to join it for a month. It's $14.99. But it goes all the way down to eight something per month if you join for a year. Um, you know, I think when people get on there and see uh, all the information that's on there and the workouts, I don't even know how many workouts are on there now. There's probably 60 or 70 at least. Yeah, and these are and they're really, really good workouts. They're not just. Three sets of eight on the bench, three sets of eight on the incline. I mean, they're really detailed workouts. Uh, many of them have videos attached to them. But um, and then all the articles. We're actually doing some new things on the website right now. They're going to launch next month. I'm putting a forum on there, and eventually it's going to replace the Q&A. Uh, people, you know, send me questions that are members, and I answer them. But I wanted something better. I wanted more information for the person. I wanted their answers. I wanted them to get answers quickly. So I'm going to have a forum on the member part of the website where you can ask questions and then either myself or uh, some of the coaches I have will answer or all of us and give you maybe differing perspectives. So I'm doing a lot, I'm doing a lot of things now to improve, improve it even more. It's a, something that I got to keep improving. If you're not getting better, man, people are going to go buy you. So I'm trying to make that thing as good as I can. Um, well, you don't have anything to worry about. You're continually improving. Like a good example is you just got your pro card, so never say die. That's right. That's right. Do you have any upcoming courses that you're presenting? I am, uh, in July, I'm going to be going to England and then to Ireland. And then in August, I'll be in Norway. Um, where else am I going? Uh, I just got back from Scotland and Canada. Um, I don't think I have any, I think, I don't think I have anything till July. So England and Ireland in, in July and then Norway in August. Where can people go to sign up to this? Um, the one in Norway is not announced yet. The ones in England and Ireland, just, um, get on my Facebook and, um, you can just Facebook message me regarding the course. 
and I will um, there's there's a thread on my Facebook. You got to go back a little ways where I kind of kind of announce it. And the guys that are promoting it have um, put their information in there. But um, if somebody just uh, sends me a Facebook message, I'll put you in contact with the guys that are running the course. Awesome. Thanks for your time, John. Look, I really appreciate it. The reason being is it's so close to Christmas. Uh, it's Christmas Eve here, and it's uh, Christmas Eve of Eve for you. So we even interrupted your Christmas shopping. So, yep, now I'm going to go back out into the war zone. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. I, it's um, genuinely appreciated. Hey, you bet, Reese. It's my pleasure. Tell your brother I said hi, and you guys keep on doing good things. Will. Um, one last thing. How can yep. people keep your wisdom coming their way? Like, what what's your website, Facebook, Instagram examples? Well, I, um, I'm on MountainDogDiet.com, and I really uh, – I really enjoy Instagram. My Instagram is Mountain Dog One, and my Facebook is my name, John Meadows. But uh, I would encourage everyone to um, bookmark my website and follow me on Mountain Dog One on Instagram and John Meadows on Facebook. I uh, I put a lot of uh, exercises up. If you go to my Instagram, you'll see I do like a every other day. I was doing it every day. Now it's kind of every other day. I'll put up uh, something I've done that may or may not be a little unique in terms of my workout. And I think people are really digging that. So uh, if that interests you, then uh, follow, follow me. Or if you want to just see uh, pictures of my kids, I got those on there too. <laughs> awesome. Th- thank you again so much, John. You're welcome, my friend. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. See ya. Thank you for listening. Hope you got it as much out of that as I did. Check out our website for more information at Melbourne Personal Trainers. Dot com or our hotline 1300 887 143. Remember to subscribe by downloading the Eat Your Way to Abs ebook, which is full of information to keep your knowledge thirsty brains growing. <laughs>